we are starting uh, an 18-week series going through the Bible. How many of you, you are the kind of person who brings your physical, but you still do? You're ancient of days. Um, you're ancient like me. You still carry your, your physical Bible around. How many of you do? I know. Uh, Bill does, okay? Stephen does. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uncle do. Yeah, y'all do. Y'all do. Okay. Handful of you do. Okay. All right. Now, the reason why I love carrying my Bible around um, uh, is because... I don't know, it gives me a sense of comfort, okay? Um, and I, I like reading off a physical Bible because I get to see more context, I see more page, you know? Um, uh, but really, it's because when my Bible follows me around, it's a visual reminder. What is the Bible for some of you who are newer to the faith, you are younger in Christ, uh, you may know, oh yeah, the Bible is the holy book, lah. yeah. Um, Christians, read it, lah, you know? But actually, what's it composed of? What is inside it, you know? So I just want to give you a snapshot. I'm sure many of you have heard uh, this in one form or another before. The Bible comprises 66 books. It is one compendium, uh, but it is made up of 66 different books, right? Written by, 24, written by 40 different authors, okay? In three different languages. Who knows which languages those are? Hebrew? And then Greek and Aramaic, right? Parts of Daniel are written in Aramaic. So 66 books written by 40 different authors in three languages across nine different genres from creation narrative to historical narrative, from poetry to wisdom, from uh, uh, apocalyptic writing uh, through to Evangelion writing, you know, across all the different genres, nine of them. It took 1,500 years and more, plus, plus, for all of these 40 writers to write them, stretch across three different continents, okay? You have it in the Middle East, you have uh, uh, stuff written in parts of Europe and parts of it written in North of Africa as well. Over 10 different civilizations it has seen from the Babylonians, the, the, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the works, right? But all of this, all of this telling one unified story. The whole of your Bible is telling one continuous, logical, flow-to-flow-to-flow story. What is this story? It is the story of God's good creation that broke and God's attempt to recreate it, one recreation after another, after another, culminating with the coming of Christ. It begins, as we will begin today, with the creation um, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, the creation of the whole universe and the creation in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, the final culmination of that creation, placed into the Garden. They fall, of course. Right, they fall and, and by, by deciding to decide for themselves what is what are the parameters of good and evil. They partake of that fruit. It's not an apple. It is a tree from the knowledge of good and evil. And over then, right, the generations after that, God has one major factory reset. Have you factory resetted your phone before? God factory resetted creation with Noah, right? As close to a factory reset as you can get, right? Wipes out 
like 99.99% of everything and restarts. Restart goes bad again, right? They built the Tower of Babel. He resets them, a minor reset there, and sends them all in different directions, you know. Um, and that takes us all the way to the beginning of the big long reset. The big long reset begins with Abraham. He finds one man. Almost at that point, like a new Adam of sorts, he finds one faithful man um, whom he will use to bring about, to raise them up. He gives him a promise, I'm going to come and fix this broken world through you. He's going to take this promise, grow a tribe out of him. That tribe is going to grow into a nation. They're going to end up in Egypt and then God's going to call them out after 400 years of slavery, out across the sea to a land he longs to give them. This is in the Exodus through Moses. Do they go in? Not after a lot of kicking and fighting and screaming. And eventually they do. They go in to take conquest of the land that God had appointed them for. And over time, right, corruption seeks seeps in again and the leaders who lead this this nation family you know uh, um, are chaotic and they do things as they please and everything starts to creak and crack at the seams all over again they finally start asking for kings right and God says no I'm your king they say nope give us kings like our neighbours have kings give us kings they get Saul then they get David then they get Solomon and after Solomon, the nation tears into two, right? They become two nations, one in the north, one in the south. It's not long before both sides get really corrupted all over again. God sends them prophets to woo them back. Don't go on your own way. Come back to my ways, says the Lord. And over time, the northern kingdom will get completely, well, it will be a collapsed government, right? They get, they get uh, attacked by Assyria from the north brought up entirely to the north and today that nation is no more okay and then the southern kingdom gets attacked eventually by Babylon coming from this way right from the east right captures them brings them over to what is now modern day Iraq they stay there for 70 years and after that after their exile they return that's why you have the story of Nehemiah Haggai Ezra and the lot they wait on that land for someone to rescue them. In the meantime, the bits between your Old and New Testament, the history books will tell that Alexander the Great rose to power and he started conquering large parts of Africa and the Middle East and Europe. You know, and during this time, uh, um, the people of God continued to stay there waiting for a Messiah, a hero, a saviour to come and rescue them from darkness and sin and evil. They do wait in anticipation until the birth of baby Jesus. And it would take another 30 years odd before Jesus would enter the ministry um, in a totally unassuming way. Everyone thinks that Messiah um, would be grand, heroic. He comes born in a manger, raised as a carpenter's son. And then he comes into ministry as a man of gentleness, of humility, and of compassion and love. But this kingdom is in our midst and he goes to the cross he dies for your sins and for 
mind. And thus was birthed the church. The Holy Spirit fell on the disciples in the upper room. And today, you and I are carriers. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This, what we have here, will go on all the way until the apocalypse when God brings the clash between good and evil to one big crescendo when all of evil will be decisively judged and dealt with. And then New Jerusalem comes down from the heavens and He brings us into our eternal home where we will live forever with Him in joy. This is the one big story of your Bible. And I'm so excited to spend the next 18 weeks going into each of these little time periods. They are not little time periods. Some of them last thousands of years, right? Um, each of these time periods to unpack for you so that week in, week out, you keep seeing this. This is the overview slide. You're going to see this every week, okay? I'm not going to go as detailed every week, but we're going to track this every week. And over the next uh, uh, five months, you know, of being in this church, I hope that you can get really proficient with your Bible. I hope you can really get a grasp of where you are. You can say, Jonah, where's Jonah? You know where he is in the timeline, and so on and so forth. And if you're a new Christian, I really hope that you can really enjoy learning the Bible and getting good with it from early on. All right, let's jump into the first one which is creation, right? Creation. God creates, right? I'm going to pop you into the big topics that we'll be looking at today. And then from there, we're going to zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, okay? But how? How does God create? He creates by the spoken word, okay? What does He create? Right? He creates the world, right? He creates the world, but he also, in this original creation, he creates a place like a temple, right? Like a wooded temple, a garden. And into this garden, he creates this image, right? The Greek word, which you will encounter later from Colossians, is uh, in Hebrews, is the apogasma, right? The exact imprint, right? And that is eventually, that will be Jesus, right? He creates an image with that looks and as the nature of this God. And then that image goes in. We'll talk about that later. Why? Why does he do this? He does this so that the image of God ruling will rule and reign and reflect the goodness, mercy, compassion, kindness, grace, power, glory, majesty, and humility, and love of the God who created all of this. So, we're going to go into these three points. How? By the spoken word. What? A world, a temple, and the image which he puts in. And why? Why does he do this? So that the image will rule and reflect the glory of the Creator. Let's dive into the first one. By the spoken word. First, he speaks creation into existence and he creates out of absolute nothing there was nothing before god existed and he creates progressively okay now for the bible genesis chapter 1 verse 1 you've got to start here right in the beginning god 
created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right? Now I just want you to bear in mind, there is waters, there is deep, okay? Um, it's formless, empty, there is nothing, okay? And then the Spirit of God hovers over it and God, what? He said, He spoke. What did He speak? He said, let there be light. And there was light, right? He didn't light a match, right? He didn't flip a switch, right? He didn't create some kind of light source. He spoke light into being. He said, let there be light. There was light. He got saw that the light was good. This is important because you see a pattern. When he says he saw that his creation was good, I want you to know that the things that God creates are good. You and I create things. Sometimes we're not happy with our creations. We tear them down and we rebuild again, right? Uh, sometimes we, we are perfectionists. We stay there and we fuss over uh, um, our little... How many of you guys are like that? You will like literally sit there and nudge away at the arrow key like left a bit, left a bit, left a bit. No, too much. Right a bit more, right? Okay, that's me. I, I think I'm the... Am I the only one here like that? Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. I like that. Okay. Um, and so when God creates though, right, He says it's good. It is, this is what light should be. Right? This is exactly what light should be. And He separated light from darkness. Right? And so, wait, where are we? All right. And so He separated, He separates light from darkness. Now, um, this corresponds, this opening of Genesis 1 corresponds with the opening of John chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1 are like siblings holding hands, right? Because Genesis 1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then he describes creation of light, okay? John chapter 1 says a similar thing. It is like a second uh, a creation narrative of its own. In the beginning was the Word. Remember, God spoke. He spoke existence into being. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word wasn't just with God, it was God, right? He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, there is no thing that exists that was not made by God. And say, no lah, pastor, got internet today. Where got internet there? You know, like all the things required to create internet, all the raw materials required to create the raw materials to require to create all the things that built up to the 21st century when we have so much high-tech, so much everything comes from God, okay? So, He creates and then man takes and innovates, right? And man takes and starts to, to join Him in that creative process, okay? But without Him, nothing could have been made. In Him was the life and that life was the, let there be, that life was the light. That life was the light of man. For mankind, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, right? I want to show you, jump from one creation to another creation narrative to another creation narrative. Colossians chapter 1 says another similar thing. For by Him, this is by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the visible 
which is like, you know, your raw materials, right? Your terrain, your ground, your all that. And also the invisible, right? Now, air is not visible, yet by it we live, right? Some people say that, I can't believe that God exists because they can't see Him, right? Um, yeah, but you can't see air, but you know, you, 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 by, by, by air you live. In the same way, you can't see God, not you know, materially, but by Him we live, right? And so He creates everything, the visible and the invisible, whether by thrones or dominions or rulers or everything. In other words, all systems of government come under His control. All things were created through Him, the Word, and for Him. So process and purpose. Through Him is the process. For Him is the purpose. All of the process of creation is for God. It's through God. Right? God, or the, you can't go through this creation process without going through God or the curated images that is you and I. Right? And the purpose of creation is also for Him. So if you ever wonder, what am I here for? What is my life good for? I feel like I'm good for nothing, right? I can't tell what is the meaning of my life. I want you to know this. All things includes you. Visible and invisible. Visible includes you. Heavenly or earthly. Earthly includes you. All things were created. You were created through God, but you were also created for God. In other words, God has a plan for you. And it's a start, still a start of the new year, and some of you um, have been making plans for the new year, right? Now, as you make your plans, I want you to know you're not the only ones making plans for yourself. Who else is making plans for you? Your boss might be making plans for you. They want, oh, next week I want to send you to this place. You know, I got this project for you. No, it's not just that, right? Um, God has a plan for you. And what are God's plans for you? His plans are for you to grow, to prosper, not to harm you, but to cause you to prosper and do well in life, right? So all things are made for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Can I say this? I just want to reach out to some of you. Some days you feel like you can't hold your life together. Some days you feel like you're just afraid and you're just about to fall apart mentally. You're feeling so under the pressure. You feel like you're just a little bit more pressure from breaking down. And if that is you, I want you to know you are not alone. Many other people go through that, but above all things, you are not alone because God is with you. He holds you together. Amen? He holds you together. Now, I want to circle back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Now, why is it important that the beginning of the Bible starts with in the beginning, God. Not even God created, okay? Before you even go into God's work, right? I want you to be able to see that in the beginning, God already existed. God already existed. And in a moment, I'm going to show you creation narratives from some of the other ancient Communities, some of the ancient civilizations and what their creation stories are like. Because I think if you know a bit of history, you know that a lot of the other ancient uh, uh, civilizations have their own creation narratives as well. But here, to lay the groundwork, in the beginning, God. So that there was God standing pre-eternal, right? He stands there pre-existent. He has always existed. He stands outside of our time 
and space, right? So when time and space exist, it's because God created it. He effected it. He spoke it into existence. So God sits outside of all that. And that's very important. Now, that's very important because you need to know this one thing about how God creates. You have a pre-existent God who creates everything out of nothing. He creates everything out of nothing. And the fancy Latin term is creatio ex nihilo, right? Creation out of nothing, right? Now, why is this important? Because if you got a bit of a mind on you, you're going to ask yourself, oh, if God created everything, then who created God? Have you asked yourself that question? Have someone asked this question? If God created everything, who created God? Then someone's going to say, I don't know, uh, if, you know why that's a problematic question? Because if you can say maybe there is a God above God, right? Like that Yahweh has like a, a, a Taiko God above Him who created Yahweh, then you know what's the problem? Firstly, then Yahweh is not the supreme being, right? There's a more supreme being uh, uh, above Him. Secondly, then you're gonna, once you have a chain that can go up, there is no ending how far you can go up. Then who created that guy? Right? Maybe there is a Tai 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 Ko, you know, uh, who created him. And then, then, then on and on, la, right? Then who created that, that guy, right? And so on it goes. Now, you can't, I don't know, we, we, work, work through this with me. Can you create yourself? You can't. Can, can, can creatures create themselves? No, okay? God sits outside of creation. He creates. And out of nothing, with no existing materials, He creates. By what? Speech. He creates by speech, okay? Now, I just want to pause here, okay, and say this, because I think there's a pastoral, there's a learning spiritual point here for every single one of us to catch. God continues to create through His Word. And I need you to catch this because God is recreating things inside you. God is creating faith inside you. God is creating resilience inside you. God is creating hunger inside you. God is creating kindness and compassion inside you. How does He create? He creates in, in you by the Word. He continues to speak to you through the revealed Word in human language that we have. That's why I'm passionate about the Bible. But He also continues to create to you, in you through the Word of God, the big W, that Logos, Jesus Christ Himself, the Son of God. And Jesus continues to create. So don't undermine and don't underestimate God's work to continue His creation even today as He does things inside you to create wonder, to create newness, and to create restoration. Okay? Now, just very quickly, I want to swing by to some ancient, okay, Near Eastern uh, creation narratives, okay? This is the Babylonian uh, creation narrative, right? Um, they, they have these two gods, Tiamat and I think another one, I think it's called Amut, okay? Um, they, they emerge from the chaos, was, is, the, is the exact words, okay? They emerge from the chaos, from the waters, okay? So one thing you're going to see in common with a lot of them is that a lot of ancient creative narratives, ha creation narratives have some waters 
at the start. And you saw that in, in the biblical one as well, okay? It has some chaos, some, some formless chaos happening. A lot of them will have that, okay? Of course, the distinction of your Genesis 1 is that God sits outside of that formlessness. He sits outside of those waters and He sits outside of that chaos and He speaks order into that chaos. Now, in this narrative, Tiamat, okay, emerges out of that chaos. Okay? And having emerged out of that chaos, it's not considered pre-existent, but then they are considered to have been there at the beginning. Okay? So, so, so when things started, they were there. Like part of the original set okay, of created order. Okay? And over time, Tiamat would have children. Uh, um, um, I think the, Tiamat represents like the, the fresh water and then Amut represents like the salt water and then the water and water touch and then got children, that kind of thing, okay? And then the children got children and eventually one of her children is, one of her grandchildren is Marduk and Marduk, her grandson, eventually kills father-mother and then uh, usurps the throne and rules as the Babylonian god, the, the chief Babylonian God. That's the Babylonian creation narrative. What about the Greeks? I know some of you are really into, into uh, you know your Greek mythology. My son's been reading the Percy Jacksons. Um, so, so he's like waving at me from the back because he knows his Greek, his Greek myth now. Okay. Um, so Greek creation narrative, right, begins with, among other several, two, I think, two uh, primordial uh, gods, Gaia and, I don't remember another one, um, but Gaia and, what's that? Koranos? No, Koranos is, is Oranus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Thanks. Thanks, buddies. Okay. Um, so, you've got Gaia, the prim pri primordial god, okay? And then spawns children, okay? The first set of children includes Uranus, okay? Which the name we now have for one of the planets. And, and she now then mates with her son Uranus, okay? Now, don't laugh about these things, okay? It's just, it's just the way their myth are, okay? And then they produce Kronos, right? And Kronos uh, um, uh, wives his sister, or husbands his sister Rhea, okay? And then at some point, Kronos eats his children. Now, I don't, don't really know um, the details of this because um, I spend more time in the Hebraic stuff Okay, um, but at some point, Kronos eats his children. It's symbolic. Of course, there are some garish paintings of Kronos eating his children. You can Google that. You know, just brace yourself for what you're going to see. And eventually, one of Kronos' own sons is Zeus. And Zeus, like Marduk in the Babylonian uh, 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 legends, you know, Zeus overthrows uh, Kronos and kills the father, even as the father kills the, uh, or, or usurps, you know, the, the grandmother, you know, overthrows him. And Zeus becomes the chief Greek god of the, you know, the, the, the Olympian gods, right? Okay, so that's the Greek creation narrative, right? Um, so again, when you look at a god form like Gaia, primordial, but also spawn at some point. Okay, spawn at some point. Let's look at the Egyptians. Okay, okay. Uh, the Egyptian primordial god is called Atom, right? Um, uh, I don't know if that's the word we get at the atom from. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, I can't be sure about that. Um, but the name is he. He, he or she, okay, um, Atom, right? Um, Self-creates, it's a he, I suppose, but then they self-create, okay? So, um, emerges out of the waters and then from the waters, something happens that is um, maybe a little bit adult language if you go and read the, the, the Egyptian uh, 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 myth, okay? So, something happens and then from there, you know, um, some kind of 
Persenyawaan happens, you know. Um, and then atom, from atom thereafter comes all the deities, okay, in the Egyptian pantheon. And then, now, Egyptian creation narratives are not so straightforward. There are many branches depending on which kind of like part of Egypt and which period of history. So at some point, Atum, who is the solar god, the sun god, um, gets merged with another solar god from another kind of like trajectory called Ra, right? And then um, they, they, it, it becomes syncretistic. They it become like a combo god. They call it Atum or Ra Atum, right? Ra Atum, uh, who is also sun god, right? And so, um, and of course, Ra is considered to be the chief of of um, of the Egyptian gods. Now, I want you to see something here, okay? In a lot of these narratives, the, the primordial god does not remain the chief god, okay? The first original god, okay, who emerged out of the chaos, does not hold on to power very long. They are a little bit like the way you remember your grandfather, okay? Um, at one point, they were the patriarch of your family. Everybody gathered in their house for, uh, for Chinese New Year, yeah, yes, house for Chinese New Year, that kind of thing. But then, over time, you know, um, uh, your father started hosting Chinese New Year's, okay? Something like that, okay? And then, over time, you are going to host your own Chinese New Year's, you know? And and then um, uh, Ye Ye or Kong Kong, uh, their narrative becomes foggy and faded as if in the background. A lot, when, when, when I research the ancient uh, creation narratives, it feels like that. It feels like third generation creating stories, right? And recounting how their father overthrew Ye Ye, you know, who created everything. But actually, Ye Ye didn't create everything. Ye Ye has a father, you know. Uh, uh, your Ato created Ye Ye, right? And then before, I mean before as, as well. But the way we think a lot of these narratives feel like they are written from a third-gen perspective, right? And so today, you know, um, whether it's Ra or whether it's Zeus or whether it is uh, Marduk, you know, third-gen king rules everything and then they become the supreme ruler, you know, the original one did not. That's not how the Hebrew God, you know, is. The God of all creation from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God has always been God. This God, Yahweh, remains on the throne until today. Okay, now, if I had more time, um, I will go, I will deep dive a little bit more and talk a little bit about Hindu uh, uh, creation narratives, which is actually it's almost impossible to talk about creation narratives in Hinduism because it's very cyclical. They have the Trimurti, you know, there are three gods who create and then preserves and then destroys in order to recreate again. So it's not so straightforward. Buddhism, Lagi Susa, because it's... I won't even go there, okay? I won't even go there. On the floor, I will, not from here, okay? So God speaks creation into existence. He creates out of nothing. Nothing existed before God. And here's the thing. He creates progressively, okay? Now, I want to see this because there is another learning point. Earlier, my first learning point for you is that God is continuing to create in you through the Word. Don't abaikan the Word. Don't abaikan your walk with Jesus because He continues to create newness in you, okay? But we have another learning point here. He creates progressively. How does He create progressively? On the first day, and I want you to, when you go look into your Bible, I won't read the entire text, but you will see Him saying at the end of creating light, He says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, okay? So, actually... 
you'll see that the Hebrew day does not quite run the same way as our day, right? Our day runs on a.m., p.m. to a.m., right? Okay, so at midnight, the day starts. Meridian Greenwich, okay, or whatever, right? A.m., 12 a.m., the day starts, okay? So our day begins in the middle of the dark, okay? And then it runs through the day hours until it goes back to the middle of the dark. And then it stops and a new day starts. For the Hebrew people, the day begins with in the evening, then in the morning when sun sets, the day begins. And when sun sets, the day ends. That's why when Jesus had died, they were rushing, you know, to prepare and embalm his body before sunset because once sunset is Shabbat, it's the next day. It's Saturday. Saturday doesn't start in the morning of that day. Shabbat begins at sundown. Okay? So that's how the Jewish day works. And I'll tell you why it's so beautiful. It's beautiful because the day begins with God working. At night, you can't do anything. You go to bed. Right? It's a marker. It's not midnight. Right? It's a, it's a sundown. When the sun goes down, you go to bed. God works. Right? And then halfway through the day, you wake up and you join God in what He is doing. And so there's something, there's a way I pray with my children. We no longer pray that we'll wake up, you know, to start the day. We always pray to say, wake up to join God in what He has already started. Because God always begins, God always initiates and we join Him, you know, in collaboration and in partnership with Him once we wake up. That's the Hebrew day. Evening, morning, the first day. And so He would create on the second day, a separation of the waters. So let there be a firmament to separate the waters, the waters above and the waters below, right? No, now I know, it's like you're trying to grasp like, what do you mean waters above, right? Did you know that if all the vapour in the skies, right, collectively gathered and poured down as rain, the whole earth would be flooded. The whole earth would be absolutely flooded if the waters above were to condense all simultaneously and pour down all at once. It's quite scary to think that there is such an aquatic kind of like kind of like weight sitting above us every day. It's by God's hand that it stays where it does. Okay, and so it says He separates waters above from the waters below evening, morning, the second day. On the third day, He separates the seas from other seas by creating dry land to emerge from below it so that the waters are separated. The waters below are separated from one another. And interestingly, on this same day, the third day, He creates vegetation and plant life. Okay? Evening, morning, fourth, third day. It's only on the fourth day that He creates the sun, the moon, and uh, as presumably the stars and all the other astronomical heavenly bodies, right? Evening, morning, fourth day. On the fifth day, He creates all the aquatic life. So before that, the waters were empty, and now He fills them with aquatic life form, and also all the bird life forms were created on the fifth day, evening, morning, fifth day, right? And on the sixth day, all the land animals are created, right? And then the crowning glory of all who walk on the land, He creates Adam. He creates Adam, the first man, okay? He takes Adam, he puts Adam in, I'm saying it the Hebrew way, Adam, right? Okay, he takes Adam, he puts him into the Garden of Eden, and then he takes from Adam his rib. Now, today we understand rib as a paikwat, right? This, this single thing, right? Okay? 
But really, the Hebrew word for rib speaks less of a single branch, okay? okay? But it speaks more of the architectural structure. Okay, now, I, I, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but it sounds more like the rib cage than just a single rib. Or at least, it symbolically is closer to the entire structure of the rib cage, which protects the heart, which protects the lungs, which protects the beating and the breathing, right? And he takes from that architectural structure, okay, a part to create Eve, right? Um, to create Eve who will be to him the one who, and I just want to say this to honour the women, right? In many ways, you provide the structure, for our households and for our men. You provide the protection so that we can keep beating and so that we can keep breathing. You know, I just really want to honour all the women here because whenever we do weddings, we say that Eve was taken from his side, not from above him to rule him, not from below him to be ruled by him, but from his side to be a companion of equal standing and stature. And I just cannot stress enough why this is so important because later, much later in the book of Galatians, Paul would write that therefore now in the gospel and the kingdom of God, there is no more male nor female, Jew nor Greek, you know, and master or slave. That actually is extremely radical. Extremely radical because if you just survey human history, you know that men are considered um, having license to own women as property. Men are created as having license to abuse women, uh, to do as they wish with women. This was not how it was in the created order. In fact, I'll tell you an interesting curiosity, right? Adam was created outside of Eden and then placed into Eden. In that sense, Adam was an Edenic migrant. Okay? He was brought into Eden. In Eden, the rib was removed and fashioned into Eve in Eden. Eden, Eve, is an Edenic native. Have you thought about that? It's my first time thinking about that. I haven't even finished thinking about that, so I don't have a piece of wisdom to give you. I only have an observation. And I've been thinking to myself the last two days, maybe at the expense of more proper sermon prep, you know, actually, what are the implications for Adam to be a migrant into Eden, but for Eve to be a native of Eden? It's like how some of you um, are, are, some of you are digital migrants like me, right? I, I lived in a day of analog everything, and then some of you are digital natives, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, here's the thing: the original point I was making, though, is that God creates progressively, and that I show you six days. Here's the thing: I want to get into this, okay, without taking sides, okay? Were these six literal days, or were they six figurative days, okay? Straight up, you need to know this. In Christian circles, from church to church, church, from scholar to scholar to scholar, you're going to have different Christians, different Christian scholars and theologians falling within one of two camps. Okay? Some will say that there were six literal days. And because there are six literal days, we can calculate six days, and then plus all the years of Adam and all his descendants which are numbered and then you can use some other genealogies elsewhere in your Bible say Matthew uh, chapter 1 has genealogies okay um, uh, you've got more genealogies um, in Luke Luke, um, um, Luke 2 Luke 1 uh, has, has genealogies there are numerous other places where you can roughly calculate 
And if you use all those things to calculate, okay, you will arrive at the age of the earth at about 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Okay? The workings inside make sense internally. You will ask them, what about, what about you know, uh, uh, um, uh, carbon dating and some of the radiometer datings and all that, they will, they will have their own explanations, right? Within, they will say that, oh, you see the flood, there was weight impacting, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, aging some of these things at a more accelerated rate and so on and so forth, okay? Generally, this way of thinking is called young earth, okay? To have a young earth view of things. If you are a young earther in Sungai Buloh Church, you are welcome. If you are an old earther in Sungai Buloh Church, you are welcome. If you are a flat earther in Sungai Buloh Church, you are not welcome. Okay? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you are a flat earther, you are still welcome. Okay? Just want to spend more time with you. Now, all earthers do not hold to literal six days. All earthers say that the word for day in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word yom, uh, doesn't refer to 24-hour cycles, but for extended periods of Time. It could be an undetermined period of time. One of the arguments that all earthers use is that the sun was only created on day four, but the word yom was already used before day one or on day one. Okay, and therefore the sun sets the 24 hour rotational cycle, you know, and so the first yom, second yom, and third yom has no point of reference for the sun. Therefore, those yoms and presumably the, the, the other, you know, uh, three yoms do not refer to 24-hour cycles. It's a valid argument in itself. They have their own explanations for it. That's old earth. And if you use, if you are an old earther, you will pretty much be able and free to agree with um, most carbon dating and radiometric type of dating of fossils to arrive at an age of the earth around 4.54 billion years old. Now, like I said, you're free to explore and you are also free to be agnostic. I think that's okay. You can say, Pastor, a lot of research, lah. I don't know. Why don't you tell me? I'm going to tell you on the floor, okay? I'm not going to tell you here from the pulpit. But I'm also going to tell you it is okay to not land anywhere, you know, because your faith in God does not change, okay? He still creates. He still sustains. He still redeems. Okay? Amen? Amen? So, so I just wanted to get this out there so that we can all feel like breathe a little bit because, oh no, he's going to talk about young earth, old earth, you know, like I'm going to feel like he's going to make fun of my view, you know. Nobody's making fun of each other's views, okay? Okay? All right. We good? We good? He creates progressively. How does he create? By the spoken word, progressively. What does he create? A world, a temple, and an image. Now, Yahweh Elohim, had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The, then Yahweh Elohim made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for God, good, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I just want to paint this picture for you because I want us to be able to become conversant with the language we use for talking about God's presence and God's representation and God's holy place. Now, the word we use for that is temple, okay? And God has appointed all kinds of temple-like kind of structures throughout human history, right? Um, throughout biblical history. One day, I'm really going to have to do up a poster um, to show you 
how many of you guys remember the train lines uh, uh, um, uh, slide that I did? Okay, um, I have to do a poster for that. Okay, I'll turn it into an A1. Now, God over time meets His people. Wherever He meets His people, that is the intersection where God and His people, God on earth, God in heaven, they meet, right? Okay, so here in the first creation, God creates everything. And then He creates, He plants this special enclave, right? Which a garden called Eden. It's called, almost like a wooded temple of sorts because it is set apart from the rest of creation. It is a special place and it is to be the abode, the living place. So He creates everything. Like how if you were building a temple, you would create everything, okay? Let's say you're building a Buddhist temple. You will build everything, the structures, you'll get all the wet works done, you do everything. And once everything, the tiling is done, everything is done, the final thing you will put in is the image. Once the image goes in, it christens of sorts what that temple is. This is a temple devoted to this, right? And I grew up from in a non-Christian uh, 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 culture. So I know that these things do not just mean wood and stone. They are not just wood and stone to the Buddhists or to the Hindus and so on. They are a symbolic representation of the God they worship. Okay? And one day we'll talk about idols, okay? And whether they are anything or whether they are nothing or whether they are something, okay? Because the Bible uses different language to talk about it. Sometimes it refers to these things as a something. Sometimes it refers to these things as it's just nothing, right? And so we'll talk about that another day. But when the image goes into the temple, it is the crowning glory and it defines the temple. Now, this image goes in. This is a temple dedicated to such and such God. When God created, where is the original for which all those are counterfeits? I'm going to ask that again. Where and what is the original for which all our earthly temples are counterfeits? Or at least approximations, if I may say. The original is Eden. God creates everything. Then He creates a demarcated enclave where His presence is going to be and then he takes his image he creates man in his own image to reflect him and to be like him okay and then he puts him in there on the as a final piece of creation this the image goes in and once the image goes in this whole thing is dedicated to the image the the, the original for whom the image reflects this is if you can say the first piece of temple picture the temple symbolism in your Bible, okay? And this is important because God continues to create temples throughout human history. You know, you're going to see them use a tabernacle, right? There's a tent and that's where Moses goes to meet with God, right? You'll see people setting up altars. Abraham, Jacob, they set up altars. They go there to meet with God, right? And they set up the temple in Jerusalem. That's the temple. That's where people go, where the intersection of God and uh, heaven and earth is. And then Pentecost, fire falls down. Holy Spirit falls into Christian believers, right? And now you say that this is the intersection. This is where heaven and earth meet. Where is the original? This is the original. Amen? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may what? Rule. Rule over what? The fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, and all, all the creatures. Rule over all the created order. Right? So God created mankind in His image. Now, 
growing up non-Christian and being aware of Genesis 1, I used to laugh at Christians. Say, wow, why your God uh, 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 create uh, uh, Adam in his image? Then, uh, but I see your face and your face not the same. So which one is like God, right? And you're okay, lah, very infantile, very juvenile. Um, Want, want, to, want, to, want to debate, make more intellectual debates. Lah. So I hope I've been learning over the years. Lah, okay? But the idea of what is God's image is not so much like the art of the nose. This guy got high bridge and like the, the eyes say pet. It's not that kind of image. Okay? In the image of God, it's more like, it's closer to, has the blueprint of God. Has the capacity for relationship like God. Because God is triune. Before He creates anything, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly in community. That's why He can create us with a desire for community. Right? Okay? Now, there are systems of belief where God is singular. Okay? And there is no Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? He's singular. And in Malay, in Malay we call it Maha Esa. Right? He's just singular. He's not triune. Okay? Now, I ask this question. How does that God create humans who desire relationship? Can you create and put into someone something that you yourself do not have? That's my first question for you now. Can or not? You can't. You can only put in your created beings that which you also contain. If you contain relationship, you can put relational desires into people. If you contain love, you can put loving desires into people. So, I ask you, where do we get our relational desires from? It's from God. Is God, before He created us, a relational being? Yes, in perfect triune community with the, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one picture of us being in the image of God. We are wired, hardwired, created for relationship. We are hardwired for love to desire love, to give and to receive, to be seen and to be known. We are hardwired something else. We are hardwired uh, um, to connect spiritually. That's part of God's image. God's image is that He is a spirit being, right? And so we are hardwired to have spiritual relationship with something spiritual. That's why no matter what uh, 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 civilization you go to, you know, all of humankind has been praying under uh, uh, altars under trees, doing some kind of witchcraft, doing some kind of spirit thing, some kind of this or that. It's, it's universal. Our natural desire to do some kind of spirit connection thing is natural, right? It's in us. That's why in church, it's just that here, we believe and we hold that we are in correct spiritual relationship with the Creator God who gave us this ability for spiritual relationship. And every other attempt to dabble or interact with spirit world is a counterfeit for which this is the original, right? And so that's what being created in the image of God is like. It also includes having the capacity for compassion, capacity for grace and mercy, capacity and a desire to see justice upheld. These are all the parts of the blueprint of God which He infuses into us so that today we can what? Rule and reflect God in His created order. Okay? You see it in Genesis 2. Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him in the garden, okay, to work it 
and take care of it. The original plan was always that in Eden, this beautiful creation, Adam and Eve would rule and reflect. They would, they would look after that garden and bring it from progressive beauty to more progressive beauty. Now, I ask you, was Eden supposed to stay kind of like in this perfect garden style uh, uh, um, uh, uh, form forever? Was it meant to be locked in like this for all eternity? Now, there's no right or wrong answer because the Bible doesn't explain this, okay? The Bible gives you hints about what he desires, okay? But it doesn't flat out explain. Do you think, how many of you think Eden was meant to stay this way forever? Yeah, yeah, we got, got, got some votes, okay? Got some half votes. Who thinks that, um, that Eden was supposed to mature? There's some of you who think that Eden was supposed to mature. Now, we know that the created order is maturing, okay? Because whatever he creates, he asks Adam and Eve to start spawning, right? Go and multiply. And then they will have children after them. And then all the created beings were also supposed to multiply. And so the land would be evolving. Not, I'm not using the word evolving in the evolutionary sense, the way, um, what's his name? Darwin, the way Darwin uses evolution, they're changing, small changes over time. Once they populate the, the, the land of Eden and outside of Eden, okay, the land is going to adapt and grow and change to the developing, you know, growth of the population increase, right? So in that sense, yes, there is a sense in which Eden is supposed to mature. And yet there is a sense that Eden is supposed to be, to remain the idyllic perfection. And it's not supposed to be broken. It's not supposed to, to be touched to the point that it cracks. Okay? Of course, it does, right? Sin eventually mars the image of God in Adam and Eve by choosing to go their own way. We'll go into this next week. By choosing to go in their own way. Adam and Eve and now all their descendants have broken trust with God, have gone on their own way in rebellion with God. And now the image that they bear of God, of the Godness has been shattered. It's not completely removed so that today you and I still have capacity for love, for justice, for kindness, for spiritual relationship and community. But it's been marred. It's been marred so that today we do all these things dysfunctionally. Does that make sense? We love imperfectly. We crave for, for attention dysfunctionally, right? That's why some of, sometimes we're very LOA, right? Um, we want community, but we, at the same time, we also reject community, right? We have a dysfunctional relationship with the image of God. This image of God and the breaking of it is something that we will deep dive when we go for our church camp later this year. I want you to memorize these dates. 1, 2, 3 June. It's very easy to remember. 1st, 2nd, 3rd June. 1, 2, 3 June. Everybody say 1, 2, 3 June. Church camp. Please save the date. Okay? We are going to Scapes Hotel in Genting. Okay? And it's Genting. Guys, please don't say, that night I got dinner. You, you come down, eat your dinner, then come back up the next day. Okay? Yeah. It's Genting. It's not Kampa. It's nearby. Okay? I can see you from Genting and you can see me from Genting. Okay? 
And, and I don't want to spill the, overly spill the beans because maybe there are no beans enough to spill at this stage. It's only January. We haven't prepared all the content. But we know that the camp will be dealing with the image of God, the original, the marring, and the recreation and the refashioning of God's image in us through the image of Jesus Christ in us, okay? So that will be our church camp. That is uh, the theme, okay? If I was a little bit more bold, I would just start naming it as the image camp, right? But never mind, I won't be quite so bold. The sin of Adam and Eve mars all of us. And from there on, you know, as it says here in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see as but a poor reflection in the mirror. Yet one day we shall see face to face. One day we shall see clearly in the mirror, we shall indeed reflect God's beauty. Now the image of God in the temple was the Adam, the first man, right? And then Adam and Eve. Now, what happens when the image is broken? Who restores that image? The second Adam. That is Jesus. Jesus comes, Romans 5, as the second Adam to restore and to do and to rule and reflect in the temple and in the creation the way Adam never did. Can you hear this? The way Adam failed, Jesus is going to come and do it without failing. The way Adam was tempted to take hold of that which was beautiful, of that which would find, give him pleasure, Jesus would be tempted in the desert to turn bread into stone to prove his macho-ness, so to speak, jumping off the top of the building, doing all kinds of great feats to prove himself. Jesus turned that down. And so the second attempt to thwart all of humanity failed where Adam sinned and gave in to the temptation of the eyes and of the pride Jesus did not and so Jesus becomes like the second Adam and he gives us a chance to bring the recreative work of God into being all over again where creation was thwarted by the sin recreation is going and will not stop because Jesus is the new Adam. He is the perfect Adam. And so, we go back to this overview. Creation and then fall. The image is broken, right? And through all of the narrative of biblical history, God is resetting, recreating from Abraham and the long story of his tribes and his people all the way so that the second recreation, the second creation can take place. This is where we are today. He is the image of the invisible God, says Paul in Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn there should not be read as um, created the way Marduk and all these people were created, okay? Um, firstborn of all creation means that he sits above. He's the big brother of all of the created things because he himself put himself into creation at one point. So he is in some sense both uncreated but also born into a created world, okay? And Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, okay? Now this image is the perfect image and will not be shattered. The Hebrew word for exact imprint is apaugasma. I didn't have it on the slide, but I want all of you to say it, apaugasma. Okay. Apaugasma means the original 
replica, if you can say that. The God and then the original representation of the God from co-eternal with the God, the Father, is God the Son. Perfect representation. As the Father is, so is the Son. As the Father desires, so does the Son. Okay, He is the apogasma of God the Father. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power, right? The creative word. So, how does He create? By the creative word. What does He create? He creates a world. He creates a temple. He puts the image. He creates the image. He puts it into the temple. For them to what? For the image to rule and reflect God. And with this, we are closing. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, and then after that, subdue the land. Have dominion over it. Things should not run wild. Things should be under your control. And I give you authority to put things under control. And he says this, over all of these things shall you have dominion. Is the word dominion. Control, authority, rule. Righteous rule. These days we hear words like rule and dominion and, and, and authority and they, they don't sit well with us. You want to know why they don't sit well with us? Because God put in us the image to rule, right? But then sin, right? And so, like I said, in the same way we have a dysfunctional relationship with community and love, we have a dysfunctional relationship with rulership and dominion as well. So that when we have a dysfunctional relationship with those things, we rule harshly. Or sometimes we rule in weakness. And overly harsh rule and overly weak rule is a, is, is a representation of the marring of the image of God in us. And so, what does God want as the original for us, Adam, Eve, to rule in goodness and righteousness the way the Father wanted. All that went to ruin, but Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is recreating and Jesus is ruling now. But He is not just ruling solo, alone. He is inviting the children of Adam. And if I may say, He is inviting the children of second Adam, the sons and daughters of Yahweh, us who call Jesus our Lord, to co-rule with Him. Where do we see this? Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. So there is a spirit, God of God. There's our spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. What? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We co-rule with Christ. Right? Because we are, we are all inheritors of the powers and authorities of Christ. Provided, provided what? We suffer with Him, huh? You want to be Christ-like to suffer with Him, huh? Don't be like, oh, I want to be Christ-like. Full stop. Provided means if you don't have the proviso, you don't get it. You don't get it, you know. That's scary, you know. One day we'll look into this in more detail. The proviso is frightening. Provided you suffer. So if you go through Christian life, you never have to suffer, huh? All my life, very comfortable. Or mommy, daddy, look after all my needs. Pastor, pastors look after all my needs. I just cruise through life. Yeah. Why oh, got suffering one? Uh? Like Gautama like that. Why well, got suffering one? Uh? And then suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, got suffering one. Provided you suffer with him. In order that you may also be, what? Glorified with him. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. But God being rich in mercy. So this ruling with him is a richness of mercy. Eh? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So we've covered this. Last year, we talked about resurrection, right? In the book of Acts, right? Made us alive, right? With Christ. And what he raised us up, remember, grow up, 
right? right? He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So we sit in heavenly places to have authority over the world we live in. I know you can't brain this. Like, why? You mean I start to rank with Jesus? No, no. And yet He invites you to co-rule with Him. Right? Because in Him and through Him, you can co-rule. So it's not that you start to rank with Him. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, not we. Right? But when King of Kings, Lord of Lords can fill us and rule the earth through us, then the original, that the whole dominion of the world can be under God's loving rule and care. That's why our altar on Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday is called Dominate Altar. It's because when we come into God's presence, He dominates our thinking. He dominates our feeling. He dominates our hearts. He dominates our will. Right? Because we don't want to dominate our own will. Right? We tried that before. It goes very bad. We want God to have dominion over us. And then through yielded Christians, He can have dominion over the world. Right? And that's why our prayer altar is called such. Right? So I encourage you, pray wherever you are. Sometimes come in, pray with us. It will be great. Creation, fall, recreation. Where creation, Adam and Eve rule over God's creation. In fall, the rule is shattered by sin. Now all their descendants rule dysfunctionally. Rule dysfunctionally in cruelty or in weakness. We rule. But God is recreating and Jesus comes to establish perfect rule forever. And I want to show you the culmination of Jesus' rule. When Jesus rules and reigns perfectly and when all of this is done and when we can go through the timeline and go until we get to the apocalypse, I don't know if you can see the horses. It's a picture of the, it's a smudged out picture of the, of the horsemen, you know. When you get to the very, very end after evil has been decisively dealt with and the righteous rule of God is entrenched, New Jerusalem comes down. He carried me away in spirit to a high, great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. This is not the earthly Jerusalem. This is not that city that is being fought for and where blood, human blood is shed, brothers killing brothers, cousins killing cousins there right now. It's a different Jerusalem. Okay? Let's get this in our head because this one comes down from the sky. Okay? This thing is not going to go up so that it can come down from the sky. Okay? The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Then the angel, this is Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. So there is a river, right? There is a river from the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne and of the Lamb, there is Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. So I want you to see this. There are images of a city, no question. Okay, There are streets, it's called a city, it's called New Jerusalem, it comes down, right? And on either side of the river, the tree of life. Wait, I thought the tree of life was in a garden. Why is the tree of life in a city? On either side, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship. 
Him. As we talk about creation, we cannot not see that the end of creation is recreation. And the end of Eden is New Jerusalem. God takes the, the scarred garden and matures it almost like matured off-site, right? And then He brings it back to us, right? Matures it into a garden city. Better than the garden city south of the border, right? This is the, this is the beautiful, eternal garden city that we will live in forever. And in that garden, there will be no more temple. You know why there will be no more temple? Because the presence of God will be everywhere. You no longer need to go somewhere to be where the intersection of heaven and earth is. Creation ends with recreation. But we are still here. So I want to invite the worship team to come on stage, you know. Um, but because we are still here, right? We look forward, right? We look forward with the hope that one day God will recreate us. I look forward to New Jerusalem coming down. I look so actually the language of heaven, you know, that maybe is not 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 precise enough, right? I, that's why I teach you all the language of New Jerusalem. It's the biblical language, right? I look forward to New Jerusalem. I look forward to the day when we can all worship Him forever and ever as perfect images of God. Created, broken, but then recreated day by day, progressively under the hand of Jesus, under the blood of Jesus, under the love of of Jesus. He recreates us so that one day we can gather like this but maybe bigger because all the saints will join in voices, right? And there'll be no end to our worship. There will be no end to our singing and praising of God. And on that day, we will sing a thousand hallelujahs to magnify Him, right? He alone deserves all the glory, the honour, the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is for ever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more and more and more. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord God, for the work you did so long ago. We don't really know how long ago, but we know it was your hand and we know it was your word and we know that when you spoke, you created everything here and every one of us has purpose created through you and for you. And so today, Lord God, we are here to say, Lord, I am yours. I am completely yours. And I desire to rule and reign over this world by shining light into it. I desire to be a righteous authority over this world by, by pushing back and holding back works of evil and so that the righteous rule of God can flow through me that wherever I go is the intersection between heaven and earth. And in this way, I pray, Lord God, that your glory will cover the earth as the waters clothe the sea. Father, we look forward to New Jerusalem. We wait for the perfect rule of King Jesus over all of creation. We wait in longing for the day when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And oh, how we all love Him. And so, Father, 
one day we shall sing thousands upon thousands of hallelujahs and never tire of it because you will be our highest calling, our deepest longing, our longest love and our greatest satisfaction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, Amen. Turn to someone and say, God loves you. And you got a good image. You got the image of God. Amen.